Father, we pray that you would calm our spirits this morning, that we may hear the word that you have for us, and that you would instill a faith in us, a faith that is firmly in Christ. I ask that you speak through my words and let it be your word that your people hear, and let it penetrate to their hearts this morning, in Jesus' name. This morning, our epistle reading from Hebrews 11 addresses the question, what is faith? And even more importantly, what does it look like to live by faith? Now, maybe some of you are here this morning and you know you believe in Jesus and you know the command to live by faith, but you may struggle with what that looks like on a day-to-day basis, what the practical outworking of this living by faith is. Maybe some of you have trusted in Jesus all of your life, but nevertheless still have those doubts that creep in. When you wonder if you can really be sure that you are secure in Christ. Maybe some of you here have struggled with the same sin over and over again. And every time you think you're rid of it, it comes back and overwhelms you again with guilt and shame. And you wonder if faith can really overcome all of that. Well, if you want to be assured that you are alive in Christ, and if you want to know how you can truly live by faith in him, then God's word has something to say to you this morning. Hebrews 11.1 gives this definition for faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. What I want to do this morning is to give a biblical context to understand this definition of faith, looking especially at the examples of faith given in the following verses in Hebrews 11. And through this, I want to encourage you in two ways. First, I want to show you why you can have assurance and confidence in God by faith. And second, I want to encourage you to examine your life daily to see where you are being tempted to live by sight rather than by faith. So first, assurance, and second, living by faith. And these correspond to the definitions given in Hebrews 11.1. So first, it says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And the first question to ask based on this definition is, what is it that we're supposed to hope for? What is it that we're supposed to be assured of? And we're given the, exam- the answer, actually, in these exemplars of faith that are given to us in Hebrews 11. And we see that many promises were made to these people. But there's one thing that it says they continually hoped for, and that is the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, and a better country that is a heavenly one. And it is for this hope, verse 16 says, that God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And what I want you to see is that they looked not to their earthly possessions for their hope, but they looked to the eternal God and the city that has foundations. And that city that has foundations is nothing less than the new heavens and new earth that we see in Revelation 21, this new city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, where there will be no more tears, 
no more crying, no more death, no more sinning, no more evil. For God himself will be with us as our God, and he will make all things new. That was their hope, and it must be ours as well. For this reason, Hebrews 11.6 says that whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Have you ever wondered why that particular thing is singled out here? That we must have faith that he rewards those who seek him? Why is that in there? Well, I think it fits the context well because if we do not believe that he will reward those who seek him, then how can we have the hope that these men and women of faith had? We will not have the things of God in our hearts if we do not long for what he has promised us rather than longing for the false fulfillments of the world. I think C.S. Lewis put it very well when he said, there are no mercenaries in heaven. And this is why it is important to know what your hope is because it will affect the way that you live. Our gospel passage this morning says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this points us to this distinction between the lasting kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. What is it that you long for more than anything? That is where your heart is, and that is where your faith is. And so we must not be conformed to the world in this respect, for our treasure will be built up in places where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. That is, in things that will ultimately pass away. But let's look to the examples of the people mentioned in Hebrews 11. Look at the example of Noah. He gave up every hope of gaining worldly respect when he started building a giant ark in the middle of a drought. <laughs> Can you imagine that? <laughs> Can you imagine after that, if it doesn't rain, gaining any credibility with anybody on earth after that? <laughs> but it says that by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And that's all because he valued obedience to God above every possible worldly treasure. Or look at the example of Abraham. When he responded in obedience to God's call, he left everything he had ever known. And it says he went out not knowing where he was going. He had received God's promise, but he didn't know exactly where that would lead. He just knew that God had promised, and he believed God. He believed that God's promise was more certain than the life he had known all his life. Especially in a culture like ours, where it's so saturated with ways that we can please ourselves and amuse ourselves and detach ourselves from reality, to be honest, it's so important to constantly be examining ourselves to see whether we are depending on those things or if we would be willing, like Noah and Abraham, to give those all up if God called us to. I encourage you throughout this week to examine every area of your life. Whether you're at work, at home, 
spending time with family, paying bills, hanging out with friends. See whether the decisions you are making are based on your hope and eternal life with God or if they're based on some other hope or goal and something that will ultimately pass away. I think that's what this is pointing us to, that our hope, what we hope in, is going to affect the way that we live. You may be thinking at this point, this is all wonderful, and I want to live with this all-consuming hope for what has been promised by God. But maybe you're not feeling assurance of this hope right now. You may be feeling the weight of the guilt of your sins, those sins that keep coming back and you can't seem to get rid of. You may be thinking, how can I possibly have assurance of this hope when I feel like I'm being disobedient to God every day? Well, the first thing I want to point out to you is that every one of these exemplars of faith in Hebrews 11 struggled with sin as has every saint throughout every age. Especially if we kept going in this chapter in Hebrews 11, we get to people like Samson and Jephthah. They're listed in this hall of faith, as it's sometimes called. Samson, who more than anyone in the book of Judges, struggled with living by sight rather than by faith. He lusted after a prostitute and after a Philistine woman who would betray him and his people, seemingly only doing anything by faith when he was in danger of death. And then Jephthah, if possible, was even worse. He made a rash vow which led to him offering up his own daughter as a human sacrifice. How in the world are these two men listed among those who had faith? Well, I think that what this points to is that if these sins of these men did not ultimately disqualify them from the faith, then certainly none of your sins can keep you from the Father. The reasons for this are given in the preceding chapters of Hebrews. And I want to show you that this comes from Christ's sacrifice and his intercession on your behalf. In Hebrews 10, it is clear that Christ's sacrifice is once for all. There's no sin of yours, past, present, or future, that was not dealt with on the cross of Christ if you look to him. Hebrews 10 explains that the animal sacrifices of the old sacrificial system of the old covenant, these were meant to show the need for such a sacrifice as Christ gave says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But in contrast to these sacrifices, and in contrast to the priests who, it says, repeatedly offered the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, Christ, it says, when he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified. That's you and me. It doesn't say those who are already fully sanctified. It doesn't say those who still struggle with sin. 
It says that those who are being sanctified are already considered perfected by Christ's sacrifice. But not only did Christ offer this once-for-all sacrifice, but he increases our insurance by being our advocate, who, as Hebrews 7.25 says, always lives to make intercession for us. There's a Puritan pastor named Thomas Goodwin who wrote a little book called The Heart of Christ. It actually has a much longer title, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth, and then a long subtitle following that in typical Puritan style. (laughs) I won't repeat that for you. (laughs) But I love this book and his, his heart for the assurance that he wants God's people to feel. And in it, he reminds us of one thing in particular, that Christ's heart and prayers for us while he was on earth is the same as his heart and intercession for us right now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And I want to encourage you, as you're reading through the Gospels and you come to a chapter like John 17, where Jesus is praying for his disciples, I want you to think about how he continues to intercede for you in that same way. This is why it says that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Even now, Christ, the same one whose blood covers all of your sins, is also in heaven at the Father's right hand, pleading for you, interceding for you. And that is why you can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. The Christian life is indeed a high calling. Jesus said that you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And Paul wrote that this is the will of God, your sanctification. And Peter wrote, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. But there is always more grace because we have the assurance that as John writes, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the perfect offering for our sins. I would encourage you, whenever you feel this struggle, to feel the assurance of God's love and acceptance for you. Because I think If we're being honest, we all struggle with that from time to time. Read prayerfully through Romans 6 to 8. See how Paul himself writes about this tension between desiring to do the things of God and yet not doing them. He comes to the point, in fact, where he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But because of what Christ has done for you, you do not need to fear any alienation from God. Because Paul himself continues by saying, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So I want you to feel that assurance to feel that assurance of God's promises that you hope for. 
And this brings us also to the second part of our definition, that faith is the conviction of things not seen. We have this assurance in God. That does not mean that there is not a call to continue to live by faith. In fact, that is the reason that we continue to live by faith, because we know we are secure in Christ. And I want to show you in particular this theme of how living by faith is contrasted with living by sight. This is a theme that's throughout all of Scripture, perhaps most obviously in Paul's statement to the Corinthians that we walk by faith and not by sight. But it's a theme that runs through all of Scripture. Hebrews 11 is no exception. It describes faith as the conviction of things not seen. See that contrast between living by faith, living by sight. But what does this look like in our lives, to live by faith and not by sight? I want us to look a little bit at this dichotomy between faith and sight in the lives of those mentioned in Hebrews 11, once again. But first of all, in verse 3, you're expecting this list of the people of old who were commended for their faith, but it starts with talking about creation. Have you ever wondered why it starts with that? It says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. I think there's a couple reasons why this is the starting point here. First, I think it's because the creation of the universe is an event that every human being ever to live has had to accept by faith. The crucifixion, the resurrected body, the ascension of Jesus, all had hundreds of witnesses who have borne witness to those facts. But not, not even Adam witnessed the creation of the universe. Even he had to accept that on the basis of faith. But the second thing, and I think perhaps more to the point, is that this mention of creation calls to mind that this world, this universe, is not all that there is. That there's actually something even more real than the things that we see. This verse is in direct opposition to the famous atheistic creed that the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. But rather it says, what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. If you look around you, everything we see, everything that is visible, it's no less real than what you cannot see. And in fact, there is something even more real, and that is the one who called it all into existence out of nothing. And that is why we must live by faith in the invisible God. But these further examples are also given. It goes into all these examples of those who lived by faith rather than by sight. Look at Enoch. Think about the time in which he lived. To give you some context, he was the great-grandfather of Noah, in whose generation all the earth had to be purged because of the great sin that was in it. And yet it says that 
he walked with God all his life. In the midst of that corrupt and perverse generation, how easy it would have been for him to look at the way people were pursuing worldly pleasures and to give in to that. But he walked with God, and it says, for this reason, because he walked by faith, God took him so that we would have his example, so that we would see that God, sh- that God shows us that those who walk by faith and not by sight will certainly receive what they hope for. And if Enoch loved, lived in a rough time, it's not even a comparison with Noah. As we read in Genesis 6, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And in the midst of that, it says that Noah still accepted the word of God by faith. And Abraham, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, went out not knowing where he was going. And he did so not merely because he wanted the land that God had promised him, but because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, looking forward to a city that he could not yet see, more than to an earthly city that he could see. Why else would he have lived in the land of promise as in a foreign land, other than that he knew it was pointing to a greater land that he could not yet see? What all these have in common is that when faced with, by worldly standards, insurmountable evidence against the promises that God had made them, they still believed God's word. But the amazing thing, I think, is that according to Hebrews 11, verse 13, all of these people died in faith, not having received the things promised. What could this mean? Well, verse 13 tells us, it says that they didn't consider the promises of God to be confined merely to an earthly inheritance, some of which they did receive in their lives but rather they chose to live as strangers and exiles on the earth. And they greeted from afar what they considered to be a better country, a heavenly one. Now we have received in part what they hoped for. We have a much greater assurance than they did of what they hoped for because we know that Christ has died for us, that Christ ever lives to intercede for us. But we also still await the consummation of the heavenly kingdom. So like those who went before us, we must learn to live like strangers and exiles on this earth. We must live in a way that does not attach us to the ways of this world. That would be to live by sight. How do we do this? How do we live by faith and avoid living by sight? I think we can look actually to Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, which gives the purpose of why all these examples of faith in Hebrews 11 are given to us. It says we're supposed to imitate their faith. And what does that look like? Well, it tells us, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There are basically two things that this verse urges us to do in order to live by faith. That's to forsake sin and to look to Jesus. And that's what I want you to take from this this morning. To live by faith, you must forsake sin. And don't seek to forsake sin because you want to earn God's favor. Forsake sin because it is God's enemy as well as yours. In the words of John Owen, another Puritan, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Sin is the enemy. And those fleeting pleasures that come with sin soon turn to overwhelming guilt and shame. But the one who loves the Lord will delight in his will. And the second thing is to look to Jesus, not to false idols, not to wealth, not to job security, not to the satisfaction of sinful desires, nor to anything else. These things can never give you hope and joy that Jesus gives you. Only by looking to Jesus, remembering his death on your behalf, seeking him in prayer in every situation, and resting in the assurance he gives you of life with God. Only by looking to Jesus in this way can you forsake every idol that demands your love, your life, and your all, and instead live the Christian life of faith. So in conclusion, I want to challenge you to think this week about ways in which you are tempted to live by sight on a daily basis. And in this, I want you to remember that every area of life is under the lordship of Christ. Nothing should be outside the scope of living by faith. Work, finances, school, the kind of entertainment you involve yourself in. All of these things, everything you can conceive of, must become under the lordship of Christ as you live by faith in him. And in this, I want you to think about what sins are those that cling closely to you. Again, we don't forsake sin in order to be loved by Christ. We forsake sin because we belong to Christ and are eager to do his commandments. As Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will do my commandments. Also consider your motives in every situation. Consider whether you're doing something based on the hope of the grace of Christ or are you doing it for momentary satisfaction or even out of despair? Are you making your decisions as an obedient child of God or in conformity to the world? There's nothing in between that. I think the temptation to live by sight might be the greatest in the midst of suffering. Of course, there are many kinds of suffering. There's physical pain. There's inner turmoil and spiritual warfare. There's persecution for your faith or calling. 
which can come from those outside or inside the church. This is when it is all the more important to live by faith and not by sight. If you look to the things that are visible, to the things that you can perceive in those times, everything is going to seem unjust and hopeless. That's the way of the world. And that's the way that we will naturally bend towards if we are not living by faith. But I encourage you that you ought to understand through the eyes of faith that what you see and feel is not all there is. That in fact, it is what is unseen, in fact, that is enduring. To look to Jesus in this. The author of Hebrews was certainly aware of this. As in chapter 10, he encourages believers to recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see how living by faith, rather than by sight, can completely alter your perspective of a situation. As Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And he continues later in the chapter, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. May this be your mindset as you go throughout this week. Take comfort and the assurance that is in Christ's death and intercession on your behalf. And in every circumstance, live in light of the day of the Lord, which is coming soon. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.